City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Good morning. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, my name's Karina and I'm here with my co-host Meg Kimber. Meg, how are you going today? Morning, Karina. I'm good. Um, very excited about our show today. It's just you and me. So Kevin is still away for regular listeners who are wondering where Kevin is. He will be back on the show next week. And Zeb's away today, um, but Zeb will also be back next week. But we have a few excellent little pieces of news to chew over this morning um, for our listeners. Uh, you've been busy looking some stuff up, Karina? Uh, I have, but before we launch into that, I thought it might be worth mentioning that this week marks the start of our annual 3CR subscriber drive. Um, So 3CR pretty much since its inception has run off the smell of an oily rag. Um, We get very limited funding from the government and we rely strongly on the support of our listeners. Um, So if you have the means, I would strongly suggest that you jump online to 3cr.org.au and become a subscriber to keep uh, to keep this this radio show and all the shows on this fantastic station on the air. Yeah, so totally. Last year we didn't do a subscriber drive because COVID had just started happening from memory. That's right. Um, and so, of course, you know, 3CR programmers have been working hard and 3CR staff have been working hard to keep 3CR on the air um, for this whole year now that we've been through everything with COVID. Um, 3CR isn't just a radio station. It's it's a place for community actions and community activists um, to gather and share resources and share their stories. And it's a really powerful and important place for the kind of um, changes that we want to see in the world. So we know that a lot of people have been impacted by COVID and um, may not feel like they have a lot to spare financially. We just ask that you can um, support us however you can. Um, Remember that 3CR also accepts volunteers and we, we love to hear from our listeners and people who want to get involved and the link to donate if you can afford to give us a financial donation and help support the work of the station throughout the year is uh, 3cr.org.au. And call the station if you don't have the, you don't have internet at home and you want to make a uh, want to subscribe and update your subscription. I don't remember what the number is off the top of my head, but Karina might have it. I would say it's nine four one nine eight three double seven. Uh, however, I would have to double check that. That's it, 94198377. And I don't know about you, Meg, but I'm pretty proud to be a part of this radio station. I was I was amazed last year when this when this plague hit, um, how all of our 
diverse and interesting programmers continue to produce new and interesting content for us um, week after week. So, yeah. Uh, and the the staff and all the volunteers are like to be commended. And I guess a big part of it is that 3CR is just, it's more than a station. It's a place where people belong and it's a place where um, change happens. Um, so <clears throat> it's such an important part of everyone's lives, including mine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now going into the show this week, we thought we'd give a quick update on Gecko, the Gungara Environment Centre, yeah. Yeah, the Gungara Environment Centre and Save Erinundra. Um, that was our interview last week. Yeah, our, our interview with Isaac, who was such a wonderful person to chat to, who was in Treesit. And um, the update is that uh, he has been, police have come in and have taken him down. Um, but my understanding is that the blockade continues with other uh, direct actions. Is that what you've heard as well, Karina? Yes, it sounds like the struggle continues and, and we wish them all the best with that because it's so important. Yeah. Now, the first news article that I saw today that caught my eye actually reminded me of you because I know you're interested in this area. It's one from The Guardian that says almost 40% coalition funds in the past 20 years came from unidentified sources, new analysis shows. So this is based on donations data released by the Australian Electoral Commission about money received by federal parties. Um, So the Centre for Public Integrity, who we've had on this show before, have analysed some of that data and it really highlights Australia's weak and opaque political donation laws. So it says, an analysis suggests last year the Liberal Party received about $22 million from unknown sources, about 38.5% of its total income, while Labor received $15 million or 27.2% of its total income, and that the problem is principally caused by the high threshold for donation disclosures at a federal level. So currently parties need only to declare donations above $14,300 and nothing prevents a donor from splitting up larger donations into multiple smaller amounts to avoid disclosure requirements. Both Labor and the Greens have attempted reform in this area previously without success. So in 2019, Labor attempted to have the donation disclosure threshold reduced to $1,000, ban donation splitting and create a real-time disclosure system. But surprise, surprise, failed to gain coalition support and it never really went through. Mm. Yeah, this is a recent article too, I know, that was um, published Monday, 15th of February, as we pre-record, so we pre-record before we go to air at the moment. Um, Very interesting, up-to-date kind of numbers from, you know, the most recent disclosure. And so my understanding is from the article that people, uh, that um political parties only have to disclose the um, donations that they get once a year. So that's obviously not ideal. Yeah. Um, And each of the states have very different rules about how political donations are monitored. 
And the federal government is, again, like with the Integrity Commission, they're the ones that are really lagging behind all the other states in terms of um, having protocols and ways to investigate and interrogate this, this information. Yeah, that's it. Do you want to talk a little bit about how transparency in something like this is really important? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've had um, Han Orby on the show from the Centre for Public Integrity, which have also, you know, are partners in this research with The Guardian. And the Centre for Public Integrity do such good work in terms of their research work, which is really powerful stuff because a lot of the... Um, a lot of the impact of lobby groups on government um, are possible because of the fact that we just don't know how much influence these groups have over our um, systems of politics and over individual politicians, which is what we've seen again and again from um, the uh, investigations at a state level. Uh, that's how we've had these uh collusion collusions and corruption and influence of um of uh private interest over political processes um so something from something at a federal level that's what's the center for public integrity and and other parties have been pushing for for a long time because um that's just as necessary on a federal level as it is at a state level but it's but at the moment it's uh it's a project which has stalled because the coalition gave in principle support, but they haven't, haven't really made a lot of moves to actually get it up to speed and and get it happening at a federal, in a federal setting. Yeah. Moving on, I thought I'd give a bit of an update on the Westgate tunnel start business. As far as I'm aware, there's, so as if you're a regular listener of the show, you may know that Transurban has come under some strife because there's been some contaminated soil um, in their tunnel digging site. And actually about two weeks ago, there was an Age article discussing how the Andrews government's being sued by a group of residents um, about plans to dump the soil in Bacchus Marsh, I think and also by a council group. I think it was Melton Council, um, both pushing separate legal proceedings against the state government in here in Victoria um, and have, as far as I know, no plans on where they're going to dump this soil. So, of course, you know, Kevin's not around, but I did have a cursory <laughs> skim of the financial review, um, as as you do from time to time. I can't believe you did that. <laughs> yeah, I did it for him. This is what we'll do. This is this is the links we'll go to. But yeah, yeah, the financial review had a had a hot take, didn't they? Yeah, it was a bit of a boohoo story about about how much Transurban's lost and yeah. they've put $2.6 billion into the project and they don't know what they're going to do. And it's, uh, what did they say? It was originally supposed to open in 2022 and now it might not even meet its revised delivery date of 2023. Um, interestingly, um, Victorian Transport Minister Jacinta Allen said that if, the talks between Transurban, two of its contractors, as well as the Victorian government, if those talks couldn't uh, resolve 
what was happening with the situation, the government would leave, quote unquote, no stone unturned to get the project completed. Was that a pun? Was she doing a pun? Because <laughs> the whole problem was about <laughs> That one went right over my head, but I really hope not, hey. This is like an, an incredible, it is literally a fiasco. Like, yeah, for, for people who haven't caught up, it's like the, they found contaminated soil. They don't know where to put it. They have to move it out of the way to make the tunnel. And um, Transurban wanted the contractors to deal with the getting rid of it. The contractors were like, this is never part of our job. Transurban then were like, well, then the government has to deal with it because we never agreed to it. And then the government was like, it's not our responsibility, but everyone's just sort of like throwing their hands up. And now everybody's, um, you know, entangled into all kinds of like uh, court actions as well, which of course power to the residents groups and the environment groups that are that are pushing back against having this soil dumped on their, um, you know, close to homes. Look, one of the reports was 800 metres, saying that the proposed dumping site was 800 metres from uh, prior, like a school and that a, a creek runs through the landfill site. And this is this is soil that's shown to have um, potentially carcinogenic contaminants within it. So it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. It's pretty ludicrous. And yeah, it's funny that it's not being talked about more within the mass media, but you know, I guess, I guess what's to be expected. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. One other thing that caught my eye, just because, you know, we, we like to talk about urban issues on city limits, um, was a smaller age article on Monday as we record that was, I guess, kind of looking more generally or globally, um, talking about the race to build the world's first functioning hyperloop. Um, And for those who don't know, that's like a a proposed transport system of like levitating capsules speeding through vacuum tubes. And yeah, it was this, it was this strange article about how revolutionary it was that this one company, Hyperloop Transport Technologies, um, was doing something revolutionary in crowdsourcing the funds to build a 5k commercial prototype in Abu Dhabi, um, which I thought was pretty ludicrous on a lot of levels because, you know, we live in an era where it's not uncommon to crowdsource things like medical expenses or, uh, you know, legal expenses and, and, talking about how revolutionary it is to for entrepreneurs to to <laughs> to go for these zany projects funny yeah because it's definitely a crowdsourcing is definitely something that's done by you know more community oriented and non-profit and you know people who have been victims of capitalism rather than the people who are sort of exploiting the profits that they can maintain that's right the other thing that it made me think about actually was a pretty interesting uh, video essay I saw a little while ago um, by someone who's interested in urban planning discussing these loop systems because Elon Musk, uh, I think he ignited interest for this kind of loop project Mm. idea, these vacuum shuttled cars or trains or whatever that can go. I think the article says they want them to go 1,300 kilometres per hour or something ludicrous like that. 
but it made me think of this video essay that talks about this interesting concept of AM and FM in relation to things like this. So originally AM and FM is like this sci-fi term um, that was used to distinguish between like the boring clunky world of AM, which is actual machines um, versus the slick, like high tech utopian world of FM, which is effing magic. (laughs) So, So a lot of these like, projects and 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 I guess these entrepreneurs really love to spruik these these media worthy stories of 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 FM solutions to real world problems mm. because we have trains like they're all they're all just kind of versions of trains that look like they come out of a, a sci-fi <laughs> novel um <laughs> The, the fastest train that we have in the world today, well, Japan and France have the two fastest. Mm. They already go 600 kilometres per hour. It's pretty fast. I'm not sure if I really want to travel faster than that, to be honest. I'm <laughs> sure my body is designed to travel faster than that. <laughs> yeah. And that's not taking into account kind of the whole financial side of that, which is you need to build vacuum tubes that go to long distances that can't turn very easily um that need to depressurize and all of this nonsense just to sell this really kind of zany whiz bang idea i think it's hilarious yeah and the article in the sydney morning herald the quote um is that quote there's a big problem in the world and that's basically there's no train or subway that makes economic sense they all rely on subsidies but the hyperloop actually can make a profit so this is a really like concerning like this is the logic of capitalism at work again that um you know the idea that trains and subways don't make economic sense is is a very capitalist idea because subsidies like the coal industry relies on subsidies but no one's out there being like you know the big coal companies are not like we've got to fix this because we rely on subsidies but as soon as there's something that's a public interest um engineering or public interest infrastructure suddenly it's a big problem that it relies on subsidies um subsidies are just taxpayers money coming back into the community providing services that the community need that's you know that's relevant and that's um that's not you know not this big nasty thing like everything in the world the logic is that everything in the world has to make a great you know big profit for for someone or some company so it's all very it's all very ideological rather definitely and i mean whether or not this these kinds of projects work in an economic sense. I guess uh, the article kind of answers its own question in that it looks like nobody wants to fund it. So let's crowdsource (laughs) this idea, you know? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Well, maybe, maybe some people will, maybe we'll see. We'll follow their crowd. (laughs) You'll see what happens. Um, If you just tuned in, you're listening to city limits on 3CR community radio and um, Karina and I are chatting about the news, but we do have some guests coming in to talk about public housing specifically. It might be time to actually take a break, Karina. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. Just quickly before we go on to that, I thought it was worthwhile mentioning uh, that we are, Monday's re-record in the midst of these new coronavirus restrictions in Victoria, the snap lockdown that... Um, doesn't look to be ending but who knows maybe by Wednesday that news has changed um so 
A press conference last week told that police would use quote-unquote common sense uh, in policing this snap lockdown. Um, I'm not sure what that means, (laughs) but as our listeners may already know, um, our already over-police communities are probably most likely to cop the brunt of these restrictions. Um, So if you've been fined or charged under these COVID-19 laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside, Fitzroy Legal Service has a free service that can help. The information for that is included in the following announcement. After the break, we'll be joined by Howard Morosi and Jack Verdens from Friends of Public Housing to discuss housing issues. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. For an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription, you can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe you're on city limits and this is 3cr community radio and we are joined by two guests today from friends of public housing we've got howard morosi and we've also got jack burdens thank you to both of you for being here good morning everyone you're welcome um so Yeah, we wanted to talk a little bit about public housing and um, the difference between public housing and what's called community housing. Would either one of you like to start off with that one? Yeah, I can can run through the uh, main differences. Actually, what I'd like to do is, first up, I'd like to get listeners used to using the term housing association rather than community housing um, because... It's really a misnomer to call them community housing because they're not communities. They're actual um, 
effectively just apartment blocks generally or or estates run by housing associations, not by the tenants. And often there's no community because there's no security of tenure. Um, so anyway, housing associations. So housing association rents are set at 30% of the tenant's income and the provider can be exempt from that. So not all providers are limited to 30% and they can also charge significant administrative fees on top of that 30%. So the tenant's paying a lot more, definitely a lot more than the 25% that the public housing tenants are paying. Second, public housing tenants have security of tenure. Uh, the housing association tenants can be evicted as would any private tenant at the expiry of their lease. Thirdly, uh, public housing tenants have to meet an income test. And once they meet that test, they're eligible and they're accepted into public housing. Whereas housing associations cherry pick the large majority of their tenants to avoid taking many on lower incomes or those with social problems, despite the fact that the government has actually said in writing that those housing associations are expected to take a high number of tenants with social problems or on lower, in or lower incomes. Um, fourthly, conditions in public housing are set by the rules of the state government Department of Housing. And by the way, this now changed. It used to be the Department of Health and Human Services, and now it's changed to the Department of Fairness, Families and Housing. Um, so those rules set by that department are relatively accessible to the public housing tenants. Whereas um, in the housing associations, the uh, conditions are set by the particular housing association. Those conditions vary a lot between from housing association to housing association, and there's a lack of transparency in those conditions. So tenants are not always or often are not provided with uh, clearly what their rights are and what the conditions are. Um, those conditions in the community in the uh, housing associations are sometimes based on written policies, uh, which could be hard for tenants to access. And sometimes they're even based on the judgment of individual housing workers. Um, then when a tenant in a housing association goes to uh, to get help from a tenant advocate, um, the housing association, association will re resist disclosure of those conditions, even to the tenant advocate, uh, until such time as they're forced to do so by the courts. Um, fifthly, uh, public housing rents are definitely adjusted if the tenant's income varies. In the housing, housing associations, the situation is a bit different because when the tenant's income falls, the timing of the adjustment of the rent is at the discretion of the provider. Um, they definitely can't legally charge more than 30% in an ongoing way, but they don't necessarily retrospectively uh, reset the, the rent to the lower amount. And also that there's no obligation on them to immediately reduce the rent. Sometimes they can even wait until the next rent review um, the policy is actually silent about that, which gives them a lot of discretion. And there's no clear definition of the date in which the housing association is supposed to uh, change the, the rent for the benefit of the tenant. 
Sixthly, public housing is managed directly by the government. Um, housing associations are regularly overseen by a government registrar, but the enforcement um, against the housing associations is not adequate. Seventh, um, enforcement of public housing conditions is fairly straightforward, whereas housing associations often try to obstruct enforcement, as I've just out outlined some ways they do that. Uh, eighth, alterations to premises for disabled tenants. Now, this is really important. Alteration to premises to uh, cater for the needs of disabled tenants is done for public housing tenants at no charge. In housing associations, they will not make these adjustments, adjustments as of right, and they require the tenant to pay. Now, I say that's really important because the government has actually come out in writing uh, and said that they're going to um, cater for the needs of people with special needs. Uh, I'll come to that later. Um, uh, uh, anyway, to keep going with the uh, differences between public housing and housing associations, um, for all those reasons, homelessness is not likely to be solved by housing associations, but would be if there was enough public housing. Um, and also, not so much from the point of view of the uh, tenant, but from the point of view of uh, how the actual workers themselves, the housing workers, public housing is actually better for them as well because it's managed by the government. It's overseen by public servants who generally have permanent positions. They have strong union coverage and good workplace conditions, whereas housing associations are more often staffed by workers on temporary contracts and they're less likely to be unionised. So there you go. I mean, if you're ever looking for a, to actually put someone in the picture, there's 10 really good reasons why we should be back in public housing and not housing associations. There's a, a great summary. And um, Jack, you've done some, some uh, community education and talked to a lot of people about these kind of issues. Is that right? Yeah, sure have, yeah. I was actually thinking just as um, Howard was going through that, which was excellent in terms of the, you know, the framework around which this sort of stuff happens. And, but then you have the, uh, you know, the next step is, well, actually what happens in practice? You know, what, what sort of things do you pick up that are, that are different? And I mean, well, firstly, we're talking about privatisation versus government run. And if we think about industries that have been privatised, uh, many of them, as we know, in practice, become a law unto themselves. And there's, the government's forever running around trying to regulate them, e.g. the utilities, you know, soaring energy costs, um, you know, the roads, etc. And And I, I don't say this lightly because uh, with the... Um, housing um, associations, uh, the move to these has happened without the public really knowing about it. So it's been a little bit more insidious. And But the, the, the bottom line is we're actually pouring a bucket load more of money to provide the equivalent function that could be provided for low-income Australians as well as moderate-income Australians, which are which, who are more likely favoured by the housing um, associations. So privatisation-wise, we could be doing all this within the public 
housing framework at a significantly less cost. And instead of that, we have a whole lot of middle people um, extracting, uh, well, let's, let's call it profit for now, even though they might call themselves not for profits. And if I can, I'll just go on to that, that next step. Okay, so we, we talk about not for profits, but the, the other difference is with public housing, we're really looking at a provision of social welfare by the government, just as we expect the government to provide um, healthcare and education, and that's great. Whereas if you look at what, what are exactly the aims of the housing associations, and it's clearly stated in a number of places, and I've, I've even got um, you know, opinion pieces by them, their, their business goal is asset growth. It's not, it's not social welfare and we'll, we'll only charge 25%. It's asset growth. And asset growth relies on how much can I borrow so I can build or buy more. So these guys are forever trying to get more properties under their coverage and then go and, and you know, get even more properties under their coverage. It's also, it will over time, according to the Australian Treasury, um, see a lot of these organisations gobble each other up. So we see mergers and acquisitions. And because of the financial viability of these organisations, and the Treasury actually predicts that they will end up seeing only about three monster organisations in Australia in, in, in you know, years to come. Versus right now, we actually have 10 housing associations in Victoria, plus uh, 30 smaller uh, groups called housing providers. So, so you're seeing asset growth versus social welfare. And you know, then, then the other thing, you know, Howard touched on it was, okay, so we have all these regulatory frameworks in place, but if we don't monitor these, then what happens? Now we've seen with with, with aged care, um, just just in the recent pandemic, um, most of the aged care that ran into trouble was private aged care, and the 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 regulator monitors them by doing a phone call. Doesn't even go out and do site visits. We found that the same with the banking um, area in the Royal Commission. It turned out the the industry regulator, or well, they go and have lunches with their mates in the industry. But they don't go and actually, you know, you know, crack the whip and actually can knuckle down on them. They're not obeying the rules. And as Howard said, we've had some uh, targets set set to the um, housing associations by the government to take uh, tenants from the lower income part of the um, waiting list, and they actually had targets that they abysmally missed. So the last time the government set targets was around about the 2011 framework. And for the next four or five years, they achieved like 2% of their target and just said, well, it's not financially viable. And the government's gone, oh, well, okay then. Um, yeah, well, let's try and get some new targets. And about two years ago, they actually did set some new targets. I went and investigated these and it was self-reporting on how you're achieving it. It's meant to be done annually and I could not find anywhere that the, the, the major housing associations were doing this. So, I mean, it's sort of a long answer to a short question. And I mean, I could also go on about, you know, the, the whole investor, investor story of who's, 
who's actually backing these housing associations. And, you know, the, 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 the federal government framework for this is to raise bonds via um, super companies and overseas investors, uh, which, which happened recently via the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation. And but they managed to raise $1.2 billion to then on, on loan to um, housing, housing uh, associations to, to um, you know, extend their asset base. And uh, the head of the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation even said, oh, this is fantastic because we're seeing the emergence of community housing as a new investment asset class. So we're talking about, you know, a whole different ethos of, you know, we're now talking about the, the finance industry, people and profits. What's the relationship between this National Housing Finance Investment Body and the state run public housing and, and housing associations that are monitored by the state. Okay, so this is actually the official means by which the government funds the housing associations. So it is by the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation and they also run on some government money and they also talk about um, supporting the um, development of public housing infrastructure which sounds great, but it's it's yet again playing with words. What they mean to might mean by that is if you get a housing uh, development going on, let's say in the city of Casey, you know green fields, and I've got to develop um, roads, electricity, you know water, you know all of that stuff. So they will loan to developers to build that infrastructure. Okay, so that will become infrastructure for public housing that people own. But it actually doesn't do anything for public housing as in as a as a welfare provision. So that's one arm of this this whole area. And the other arm is literally is um, lending to um, the housing associations. And then in the meantime, the government also does get funding from federal, and they've also got 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 a Victorian fund, um, which which will loan to um, uh, the housing associations. So. So a lot of this is borrowed money via Victorian government management um, and also via the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation. Yeah, mm. so there are two arms. But in the end, they're doing the, both the same. And where does public housing come from? Well, that's out of the public purse. And I guess the, the government could also borrow if it wants to. Yeah, interesting points. And a, and a really, at the start, you made a really great point about... Um, that this isn't effectively this like creeping move towards privatization of an existing public resource, but done so in a way that people are just unaware of the fact, as you've mentioned before on the show, people don't think or know that there is a difference between what we call community housing and public housing. People think they are one and the same thing. So um, a good show today for people to, to understand the difference. Mm. And, and also, you know, the, the word social housing. I mean, the Victorian government talked about social and affordable housing, the, the, yeah. the budget. And all my mates came up and said, oh, Jack, isn't that great news? This stuff you've been campaigning for has finally come to fruition. And I'm going, no, I'm sad. It's, it's, it's money with $5 billion has just gone to private companies. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, did you want to talk a bit more about the budget? 
Well, the the affordable housing part is 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 the new sort of creeping area here as well in terms of privatisation by stealth, and and it's a it's a it, it's I call it quite sneaky because a, lo a lot of people say oh I can't afford a house, and but they're usually talking about buying a house, and you know the provisions for for fixing that are in fixing the whole negative gearing th area the area of capital gains discounts, and you know, really, really stopping people investing in housing as a object, as an asset that they, they also can make, make a profit out of to drive down the price of housing. So it gets down to what is affordable housing. We're really talking about rental housing. And, um, and so you know, in, in the budget there, there's probably about a third of the property development they're targeting is where they give favourable uh, zoning treatment to a developer who will almost for certain in, uh, uh, get involved with a housing association in terms of an agreement to go and develop a, 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 or run a project, a development project where percentage of properties allocated to, to affordable housing, which everyone thinks is okay, but it's actually, you know, affordable housing is defined as 80% of market rate, and it won't be the people at the bottom end of the, um, you know, the income in terms of public, uh, you know, you know tenant-type income, and and it'll be um, creating an economic apartheid for the higher higher, um, uh, you know, medium-income type of Australians so who can actually get into these um, developments, uh, and 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 for that. The, the favourable zoning, the, the insidious thing there is, and it's in the, it's in the budget announcement, they, to make this viable, I've actually read a massive document recent on the whole uh, agreement framework for affordable housing. They actually anticipate that in many cases they'll get a donation of land to make, to make the whole project affordable. So they yeah. can actually, you know, give away sub-market rental within there. Because someone's got to take the financial hit. And it looks yeah. like it'll be the government by, by actually lowering the cost of a development, by giving it away or letting them build more floors on a tower, which they otherwise wouldn't have been allowed to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then allocating a small percentage of it to uh, that have a slightly lower than average uh, rental amount, which the rental amounts, 80% of unaffordable is still unaffordable with yeah. the way that the rentals operate in Melbourne. Mm. Yeah. To put it actually in some concrete terms, I just did a really quick Google search um, and at the end of last year, the median rent in Melbourne was $400 a week. 80% of that is more than $300 a week and that's still more than the base job seeker rate. Yeah. What it should be is, you know, 20%, 30% and that's more than 100%. Hmm. Yeah, well, they're talking about people on about eighteen grand and up in terms of a per annum rental for an affordable housing uh, rental, and the government's tipping in. You know, the Australian Treasury report just says this is not financially viable. So we actually tip in a thing called Commonwealth Rental Assistance for all community housing, which um, tops out about one hundred twenty, one hundred thirty dollars a fortnight. So that's on top. Yeah, you know, immediately money out of the public purse. Then the you know Victorian Economic Development uh, Group, whatever it is, it does the lending. So that's more public, um, you know, finance. 
And then the scary one is public land, because that stuff is where we could be building public housing or getting the budget for it. So if and when we do get the budget for it, we can have to find land if we've given it all away. Mm. Yikes. Yep. Yeah, concerning stuff. Howard, was there something else you wanted to cover about the 10-year strategy? Yeah, um, well, there, yep. there is one. <laughs> so the government's just announced the 10-year strategy. Uh, it was covered in the age last week. Um, so in addition to the strategy, the Minister Wynne uh, has said that the government might build an extra 2,500 homes in the next four years on top of what was announced in the big build. So, again, a small amount. Um, the article uh, is completely uncritical. Um, it quotes two housing associations. It gives an example of a grateful family that's going to flourish uh, because of the state government. Um, so... I went and had a look at the actual strategy. So you can actually have a look at the strategy and the public is invited to make a comment on the strategy. Um, so I've had a very close look through it. I haven't actually drafted up my comments yet, but I've drafted up a summary. Um, so if anyone wants a summary of it, uh, well, try and get in touch with me um, and uh, I'll send you the summary. I'm not sure if we can put it up on the City Minutes page. The summary, the whole summary would be too long, but we can put a link to Friends of Public Housing's Facebook page. Would that work? Yeah, probably. Want to get in touch? Yeah. Yep. All right, so keep an eye out. If we can uh, direct you to my, my summary of it, uh, we'll do so. Um, but we'll definitely put the link up to the um, feedback and... Uh, yep. Effectively, I can run through it. It's not, I've distilled quite, you know, it's probably something like 30 pages. I've distilled it down to quite a short summary, um, which is just be with really one second. So, yeah, we'll put the link up on the show notes on, on the website at 3cr.org.au slash city limits. And anyone who's interested can have a look and put in a submission of their own. I'm assuming it's open to anyone to comment. Yep. And um, so Howard's going to run through Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing, if you've just tuned in, is going to give us a bit of a summary about um, the government's 10-year strategy uh, to address housing. Okay, it's just been released and they're taking submission from the public until the 9th of April. Um, so it, it says that the uh, really important is that it says it'll maintain the current stock levels of public housing, right? That's point number one. To maintain the current stock levels, so they're not going to increase it, right? Same story for the last 20 years. Yep. Uh, they're going to renew, upgrade, and maintain it. Now, the first thing, first point I've got to make about that is, under their proposals, under the public housing renewal program, and also the big build, it leaves it wide open for um, actually a reduction in the actual absolute numbers of public housing. So, if they were to honour this commitment they've given in a ten-year strategy, well, that would actually be a a profitable improvement over what's probably going to happen, but I wouldn't trust them. 
Um, they said they're going to renew, upgrade and maintain public housing, which is what they've said in the big bill. That's where the money's going to, not to increasing it. And they've said, uh, otherwise the housing associations will grow, right? So they're explicitly saying there's going to be growth. They're going to grow the supply of the combination of public housing and the housing association, but it's, it's going to be in the housing associations, not public housing. Right, and that's buried away. So when we make our submissions, we obviously make a very big deal out of that, put that in capital letters, uh, underline it. Uh, you have abandoned public housing, Dan Andrews. Um, it, otherwise, it make, makes no actual commitment to the numbers of housing of any type, not even the housing associations or uh, affordable housing, right? So even though it actually talks about the, um, the waiting list of 48,000 households for social housing. It makes no commitment, even over 10 years, of even meeting that waiting list, which is currently here, let alone what's going to happen in the future, let alone the number of people that would like to be in public housing but can't meet the income uh, test or just sick of waiting so long. Um, so... Uh, they're going to do one positive, they're going to do a few positive things, like little things that will make themselves feel better, create work for public servants or probably for consultants. Um, and, uh, but, you know, like, they're, for example, they're going to do a large, they're going to do large scale regular surveys of public housing tenants about their services and other issues relevant to them. Okay, good. But I'm glad they're going to get feedback about the fact that you know, they do need to do proper maintenance. Um, and, but that, obviously they're not going to get feedback from people that are waiting to get in public housing about how there should be more public housing. <laughs> but we, we already know, you know, we know that they don't do proper maintenance because they've contracted out. We know that before they started contracting out the maintenance, the maintenance was done properly uh, by the government department. Um, Next, they say we'll partner with the Aboriginal community regarding housing and homelessness to give it greater influence and control over design and delivery. It says that there is a framework which was developed by the Aboriginal community called Every Aboriginal Person Has a Home, the Victorian Aboriginal Housing and Homelessness Framework. Now, I can't comment on that. I don't know whether there is such a framework. I presume so. I don't know how much it was developed by the Aboriginal community uh, I don't know whether it's developed by Aboriginal bureaucrats and it'd be really good if we could, we'll try and make contact with some people in the Aboriginal community to get their feedback, I just don't know. Um, the uh, strategy mentions a compact with local governments to deliver housing. Um, that hasn't been developed yet, but they're going to develop that. I presume what that's going to be is they're going to put pressure on local governments to offer up land. Yes. Which then be used to build housing association properties. And, and watch out. They're actually going to introduce a word. Or you see when they're in their, in their lobbying, it's called housing trusts and it's the financial method for local governments to get into the privatised housing business. So it's it'll be using government land and then a private community housing or, you know, housing association. Which is pretty much what um, St. Kilda, was it, Port Phillip Housing was. 
uh, was set up when I think it was still St Kilda Council, but it's now just become uh, what is the Housing First now, isn't it, Jack? Yep. Yeah. So this is another housing association. Um, yeah, business housing trusts will be the, the, the technical term of local governments will use. Yep. And they'll be given uh, access to public land in perpetuity, which means they rent it for, for 99 years type of thing. Yeah. Um, now, the strategy has general commitments, uh, which are good, good if they do them, good if they actually lead to meaningful outcomes. Uh, the commitments are to consult and act jointly with all housing stakeholders. Um, they commit to have outcomes for people. They don't say which people. I mean, it should just be the residents, but we know that it'll actually include people such as money lenders and housing associations. Um, they're committing to use data and evidence. They're committing to good governance, which would be a change because we know what had happened previously with um, the Kensington development. There was a lack of transparency there um, and uh, various academics tried to find out exactly how much was actually uh, donated by the government to that. So if, if we do get good governance, that would be an improvement. Um, they're committed to making it easier to access the housing options for the residents. Um, they're committed to develop communities and diversity, to remove stigma, to empower residents, to have quality housing, to have access to infrastructure, jobs and services, and to focus on the residents and the local communities. So again, we just go back to how, how public housing actually operates now. We don't need consultation to work out how to do it. It's there in public housing, right? To get access to, how, to the option of public housing, all you've got to do is build more public housing. There's, yeah. pe there's people banging on the, on the doors of the department to get in there, sometimes literally, and the only reason they can't is because there's not enough housing. Like 1,000 units given away to the housing associations in Victoria over the years. 17,000 more house, public housing units would, would go quite a way to actually solving the homelessness in, in Victoria. Anyway, so that's, it's, it's there already. Communities already there in public housing, as, as we keep saying. Diversity already there. You know, every ethnic group in Victoria is represented in public housing. Um, stigma. The residents don't have stigma. The stigma comes from outside. We know how to remove it. Yeah. The government should be standing up for public housing uh, when, when uh, the various um, newspapers or uh, TV current affairs shows stigmatise them. The government just stand up for them, that's all. Or get the public housing tenants on, on uh, a voice and they can exactly remove the stigma because they, they are just normal people, some of whom have critical problems. Um, access to infrastructure, jobs and services, well, it's already there. If you leave your public housing in the uh, inner, inner Melbourne and, and the suburbs where it already is, those, that access is already there. Um, so again, you know, I mean, tell me something that, that's already there that you're going to do except you're going in the opposite direction because you're giving it away to the housing associations. Well, anyway, so just to press on, um, actually, Meg, you would like to have something to say there. I do, because we're coming to the top of the show. Um, we've actually been chatting for about 40 minutes. Um, I 
think that Jack might have something else to add. And I did also want to cover, um, you know, what's happening with the public housing renewal project, but we may need to save that until next month now. Um, did you do, I'm assuming both of you have some final comments. Um, you can keep it to a couple minutes each. Well, I'll, I'll just jump in and say I can close off. Um, I used to work for a large corporate, um, and you have these consultants come in and run their studies. So that firstly, A, there's some money going to some major consultant, and you don't run a consultation unless you already know the answer. Um, you know, these guys, you know, they, when they meet at the Melbourne Club or wherever, you know, they, they, there's always people, people buy from people. So these people are all already networking privately to have something like this consultation even get floated. And it's quite audacious. And as, as Howard said, we, we already know the public, how to do public housing. So why are we having this? It's purely to put a financial framework around how to give away more money to the privatisation industry. They even declared it. You know, we will maintain public housing at its current stock levels. Well, that's been having, happening for 20 years. And so this consultation will be how, how to give away more money legally. And, um, we've, and they already pretty well know the stuff they're going to do. It's like asking Dracula to tell people how to run the blood bank. <laughs> how would... Um, yeah, so I'll just conclude by saying we've put in plenty of submissions to uh, inquiries before and we are where we are. So don't fret too much if you don't put your submission in. But if you feel like it, it's just quite easy to say build more public, build enough public housing to, um, to satisfy the waiting list and stop giving it away. Um, the link will be there on the uh, 3CR page. But I'll just mention one other thing, and that is in addition to um, that inquiry, the government's announced a, a review of the um, social housing regulation with a view to common regulation for all social housing and to also examine a national regulatory scheme, right? So there are two dangers to public housing because if you have common regulation for all social housing, it'll probably mean public housing regulation goes down rather than the other way around. And same problem with the national regulatory scheme, you know, probable, probable diminution of public housing rights. Uh, anyway, we don't have time to go into that, so that's something for next time as well. Mm, mm -hmm. I'll put the link up to that, I'll link for that up on the uh, page as well. Yeah, and anyone who's listening and wants to sort of investigate um, the it, the website is engage.vic.gov.au. That might that might give you enough information if you Google ten year social and affordable housing strategy Victoria. So, um, but yeah, as Howard said, we can pop that link up in the podcast and on the website at 3cr.org.au slash city limits. Thanks so much to both of you for coming in today and giving us an update about what's happening with public housing. We'll talk with you both again next month. Look forward to it. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.